All right, we have been moving through uh, the Bible, looking at the story of God and who he is and how he has uh, interacted with his creation, with humanity. Um, we started with uh, who he was, who he is um, before creation and since then, um, that he is uh, one who uh, is relational. He is one who is um, self-contained, that is. He is he is very much um, uh, built or existing without need of, of outside interaction, but he is one who loves. And so because of that love, because of that uh, relational nature he created, and um, man rebelled against that creation, rebelled against uh, their king, and God has set up a plan to respond to that rejection, to that rejection through uh, a certain family, uh, beginning with Abram. And uh, last week we looked at that: Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And when we concluded last week, we we left with uh, the descendants of Jacob all in Egypt. Joseph had risen to second in command in the nation of Egypt. And because of his standing and because of the famine and because of just the opportunity that that presented, everybody, uh, the, t- the scriptures tell us, everybody in Jacob's family moved down to, um, to Egypt and began to dwell there and live there. And as we pick up this week, we see uh, a shift. We see a shift in the story of Israel in terms of their fortunes, but we also kind of see a shift in terms of God and how he interacts with uh, his creation. Because in the, the narratives that begin in Exodus, we, we begin to witness really the first miracles that God begins to perform through an individual, through a leader uh, in the Scriptures. He, now, obviously, he's done the miraculous, you know, through the flood and, and through the preservation of, of individuals, and he has providentially led the circumstances to their place. We talked about that, what you designed. For evil, God has desired to be good and, and has set that out and so forth. But this is really the first narrative where we pick up and we start to see God functioning within the world through the miraculous and through a, a particular individual. And so we pick up uh, today in Exodus. And, and here in Exodus, as we look at uh, the story, uh, we see really the story of uh, nation of Israel uh, in relationship to God and the leadership of one certain individual named Moses, uh, who will be the instrument of God's rescuing of Israel. Now, why do they need rescuing? Well, as Exodus picks up, it tells us, it relates to us, that uh, there arose a king, this is in Exodus 1.8, a new king who did not know Joseph. Okay, uh, He did not have... Uh, any kind of connection with Joseph. He wasn't aware of Joseph's influence. He, he didn't care. Probably what we have here, historically speaking, is a shift from um, what's called the, the second intermediate period to uh, the new kingdom. Okay, you, you go from an era where you had foreign rulers, which is where Joseph ruled and, and served, uh, now has given way to Egyptian leaders once again on the throne. And with the, the rise of these Egyptian leaders, they're wanting payback. They're wanting payback against those who had previously ruled, those who had previously run the country. And, and we have several accounts during the New Kingdom of 
pharaohs and their anger toward, uh, especially the Semitic individuals who had played such a big role during the Middle Kingdom of displacing Egypt uh, as a power and so forth. And so because of that, that mentality and that, that desire for payback, uh, you have now a, a situation, a circumstance in which Israel is no longer a favored state, uh, state or a favored nation or a favored people. They're now enslaved. And Egypt has taken uh, the, the workforce, has taken the individuals that have grown from the 70 that went down with Jacob to, uh, the text tells us, a, a extremely numerous people. That's what it tells us. And they've taken those and they have enslaved them. They have oppressed them. And, and you see Pharaoh here uh, reaching out and, 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 and trying really to stop the work of God. God has a plan. God's plan is to use Israel to touch the nations. For that to happen, Israel has to grow. God has begun that growth. We see that in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. And Pharaoh steps forward and he says, we have to stop this growth. We have to keep these people from becoming numerous. We have to keep these people from becoming influential. We have to keep these people from being who God has desired them to be. And so he begins to oppress, and he begins to, to try and make life difficult. And his, his method here in chapter 1 is basically to try and eliminate the male children. Okay. That's his desire. He wants to eliminate any infants, any children that are born that are male. And his thinking is, is obvious. Right now we have enough males to work the work and so forth, and we can replenish with females. So... Let's keep the females alive so that they can have children if we need to and so forth. Um, but we, we don't need all these extra males that can also serve as soldiers against us. And in this desire to, to squash Israel's existence, identity, future, you see infants killed. You see people oppressed. You see people hurting. And it's here that we see really the, the first truth about God in the world, that He is present. He dwells with His people in this world. And one of the ways that He dwells with the people in this world is He shares in our hurts passage we, we read together earlier um, is, is a key passage here. Exodus 2, 23 and 25 says, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. There's that plan we talked about last week. And God saw the Israelites. God knew. Whenever you're in a narrative, we've, we've talked about this before, whenever you're in a narrative, whenever you're interpreting Scripture and you're looking for meaning, focus in on the verbs. Highlight those verbs, because those verbs are, are where the action takes place, obviously, but, but, they're, but they're, they're relational as well. And, and here you have what? You have a, a piling on of, of four very intimate verbs. 
verbs that communicate God's connection with his enslaved people. He heard their groaning. And the heard is not just, oh, what is that? Someone's groaning out there? It, it's, it's, a, it's a paying attention to, okay? That the groaning, the, the sorrow, the grief that they were expressing impacted him. You know? He remembered the covenant. Now, again, this is one of those words that, that means something different in the biblical context than sometimes we think of when we use it. When we use the word remember, we think, oh, I forgot, and oh, wow, I had to do that. I just remembered I had to do that, or I had something involved there. When the text says that God remembered his covenant, it's not saying he had forgotten, and now he's like, oh, wow, I'm really glad somebody reminded me of that. Okay, What it's saying is he is uh, he he's stepping forward engaged because of that covenant okay he uh, uh, another way to render it might be um he began to act on the covenant the plan that he had the the, the promises he had made the commitments he made to abraham the great nation the, the great people the great name that's the covenant he had with them and and now he's going to he's going to act on that He's going to see it uh, enacted in their lives. He saw the Israelites, the text says. And again, this is not just like the hearing. This is not just, oh, it's there. It touched him. It affected him. And then that's all wrapped up with the last verb he knew. He had intimate knowledge. He had connection with their grief. When we go through hard times, when we go through difficult situations and circumstances, sometimes we wonder where God is. Sometimes we question what's going on. And no doubt that was Israel at this time in their history. They're, they're oppressed. Their young baby, male babies are being killed. They're experiencing hardship. They're slaves. Where's God? This passage tells us he's right there with them. He was right there with them. He was sharing in their pain. He was walking with them through the valley of the shadow of death. He was there. And we have here at the end of two with, with these words, with this expression, we know things are about to change. Something's about to happen because when God gets involved in this way, when, when you have this sort of piling on of, of verbs noting his connection to the event, you know something's about to change. And so what we have happen then in chapter three is the birth of the one who's going to bring that change, the birth of the one who's going to be um, the instrument that God uses to respond to Israel's circumstances or situation. And we see in the birth of this one, we see another truth about God's interaction with his people, and that is he prepares us for what he calls us to. Okay. God puts certain calls on our lives. Sometimes they're relationships, sometimes they're jobs or tasks, sometimes they're 
their uh, just uh, an encounter that he's called us to. And I know a lot of times when those encounters happen, when those events happen, we wonder, am I really up to this? And we have to trust that if God has brought us to that circumstance, if God has brought us to that moment, if God has brought us to that relationship, he has prepared us for that. And we have to trust further that he's with us. The, 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 the perspective that, that God is with us in our hurt also carries on that he's with us in his calling of us. And this plays out quite clearly that he has prepared us in, in the story of, of Moses that we see. The, the, the narrative begins here in, in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, with the birth. Uh, excuse me, this is back in chapter 2, with the birth of Moses. It says, Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman, and the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she could no longer hide him, remember Pharaoh has ordered all the sons to be killed. When she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and, and coated it with asphalt and pitch. And she placed a child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Now, this, this narrative here begins the journey. It begins the reflection of, of this one who's going to be God's answer to the, to the enslavement of oppression. And there's lots of, of valuable insights there. Number one, his, his family, both his mother and his father are Levites, which means they're priests. They're a priestly family. He is a priestly family. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator, an intercessor, someone who stands in the gap. So this one who's being born is, is one who is designed, who's, whose family is... is constructed and, and called to the job of intercession, of standing in the gap. And, and we also see that he, he, he has a special position here because it says when she could no longer hide him, she got, my, this translation says, she got a papyrus basket. Now if you have your, your, your King, a King James Version, it says there she got a papyrus ark. And that's actually the word that's used there. It's the exact same word that's used back in Genesis 6 through 9. And it's the only two places in all the Old Testament that it's used. Genesis 6 through 9 with Noah's ark, and here in Exodus 2 with Moses' ark. Just as God had preserved and protected humanity through Noah and the ark, he's now going to preserve and protect Israel through Moses in this ark. You also see kind of a culmination of, of how God had overcomes uh, the, the attempts of Pharaoh to, to overwhelm, to stop Israel. Pharaoh's last order in, con in, in connection to the sons of, of Israel was that you need to throw them in the Nile. That was how he wanted the, the sons to be killed, just throw them in the Nile. And what is Moses' mother doing here? She's obeying the, the Pharaoh's command. She's throwing him in the Nile. And what happens? Through her actions here, Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter uh, takes him in, has compassion on the baby, the text says. And now what's happening? Pharaoh, who was trying to, to squash and stop Israel from overwhelming Egypt, is now paying to raise the very one 
who's going to lead Israel out of Egypt. God's winning this battle, if you can even call it a battle. It's not even a competition. God's actually using the very instructions, the very things that Pharaoh wants done to see Pharaoh overthrown. That's how powerful he is. He doesn't, he doesn't stop. He doesn't cause Pharaoh's actions. But he's so powerful, so insightful, so wise that he can actually use him to further his own goals. And so you have what? You have Moses growing up in Pharaoh's house. Now, the concept that we sometimes get from Hollywood and so forth is that, that Moses was going to be a, a prince of Egypt, a king of Egypt. He wasn't. He wasn't a prince of Egypt. He was never in line for the throne. He never had any sort of hope of, of being Pharaoh or anything like that. That's not the kind of relationship that Moses had here. And we know that from a couple passages actually in Scripture here in the Exodus narrative. Uh, as, as Moses grows up, he, he uh, witnesses a, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, the text tells us. And he does what? He kills the Egyptian and tries to hide him. And then what's the text say? It says, Moses become very afraid that his actions might be found out. If Moses is in the royal family, there would be no reason for him to be afraid. None. Pharaoh's house in Egypt, we know from multiple Egyptian texts, they made the law. Whatever they declared to be the case was the case. And so if Moses had actually grown up thinking he was going to be an Egyptian pharaoh or part of that family or in line someplace, he had nothing to fear there. Secondly, connected to the same event, the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting. And as those Hebrews are fighting, Moses tries to intervene to say, stop fighting, you know, don't do that. And what's one of the Hebrew slaves say to him? Who made you lord over us, or boss over us? If Moses is in the royal family, there is no way a Hebrew slave is uttering that sentence to him. Okay, No way. Now what is going on? We, we know from, again, we know from Egyptian texts that one of the customs of Pharaoh was to take a, a, an infant from a, a conquered people, to raise that infant in his house, and then... When they came of age, he'd place them back in power among those people, and that way he had kind of a voice. I'm Hebrew, you're Hebrew. This boss is telling me to follow Pharaoh. I guess that's what we need to do. This is a very common practice. That's probably what Pharaoh's thinking. But as he does that, he is going to train this young man, this, this baby, in, in administration, in writing, in, in, in leadership, in, in all sorts of skills. And it is going to be a very favored position, a very easy lifestyle as compared especially to his fellow Hebrews. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when it says that Moses laid aside his favored status to go dwell among his people. And so you see what? You see Moses here trained in leadership, in literature, in administration, in, in, in probably some basic military tactics, leadership. But because he's killed this Egyptian and because he knows it's been found out, he does what? He flees into the desert. And he gets out there in the desert 
and he encounters a group of women at a well who are being attacked by brigands, who are being attacked by desert pirates, so to speak. And Moses steps in, and he does what? He rescues. That's his character. That's his nature. He is the intercessor. He's the mediator. He is the protector. He's the deliverer. This is that guy. And because of the gratefulness of the father of these women to for Moses, he's taken into that family. He marries the, old, the eldest, Zipporah. And for the next stage of his life, he's what? He's a shepherd. And he's out there in Sinai. And what's he doing in Sinai? He's, he's learning the, the travel routes. You didn't just wander through the desert. There were specific routes that you traveled to get from one place to another. He's learning where the oases were so he could water the sheep and take care of himself and his family and so forth. He's learning where the dangers are, where, where people typically travel and, and so forth that might cause problems. He's learning how to deal with stupid sheep. Okay. So what do you have? You have a man who's trained in leadership and literature and, and understanding. You have a man who's trained in the nature of the desert, who's trained in dealing with stupid sheep, who, who, who knows how to do these things. You have a man who, in his nature, in his essence, is a mediator, someone who intercedes. You have a man prepared for the job that God once carried out. And we pick up in, in chapter 3 with God now stepping into Moses' life directly. It says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he utters those words, those biblical words that are so powerful. Here I am. It's not just a way of saying, I'm over here. It's a way of saying, tell me what you want me to do. And he begins to have this, this conversation with God here in this moment, in this experience. And, and a lot of times I think we're really hard on Moses. Because <coughs> God tells him, Right off the bat, Moses, I want, you to, I want you to go. I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. Bring them back here to the mountain to worship me here. Gives them a clear instruction. And Moses begins to ask questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? He asks four different questions to God. And sometimes we look at that and we say, man, where is his faith? You know, if, if I'm standing there, and I'm looking at a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And a voice is talking to me out of that fire, out of that bush. I'm just going to be honest. Whatever that, that voice tells me to do, I'm probably going to agree to. Okay? Now, I'll be equally honest. I may walk away and not actually do it. Okay? Because I have my failings. I have my, my, my problems sometimes carrying through. But at that moment, whatever that voice says, I'm on board. 
But here you have Moses saying, what about this and what about that? And what we see is what? We see a personality that is exactly the type of personality God needs for this task. Because God is asking him to do what? He's asking him to go back to Egypt to stand in front of the most powerful man in the world at that time in all the palace splendor and all the glory with the magicians and all the other things that are there and, and all of that and say, let my people go. He needs somebody who can stand in, some, in front of somebody something amazing and stand his ground. The very personality that God had given Moses was preparation for the task that God was giving Moses. It's not just the life that he's lived, it's the personality he has. And again, that, that's, that's important to us as believers. Because a lot of times, we want to change our personalities. God, can you make me more outgoing? God, can you make me less outgoing? God, can you make me less stubborn? God, can you make me this or whatever? We have to realize that God constructed us the way he constructed us. He gave us the personalities he did to be the person he wants us to be in the situations he's placed us in. There are people that your outgoing nature will connect with that a more laid-back nature would never respond to. There are people with your laid-back nature that you'll connect with and respond to that, that would be turned off by an outgoing personality. God made you the way he made you for the purpose that he made you for. And it's important for us to, to respond to that. He has prepared Moses for this task. He's prepared Mo Moses for this calling, for this moment. His, his training in both Egypt and in the desert. His personality and, and his ability to, to stand his ground. His nature of being a mediator, of standing in the midst. It all comes together to be exactly the person that God has planned to bring Israel out of Egypt. But alongside that truth that he has prepared us for what he calls us to is the truth that he holds us accountable to his expectations. In Exodus chapter 4, there's, there's, a, there's a strange story. Okay. Moses has finally agreed to go. Um, he has responded to, to God's leadership and to God's provision through his brother Aaron and all those other things. And we read this in verse 24 and 26. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, that him here is Moses, and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Now you read that, that story and you're like, What? God has spoken to Moses through the burning bush. Moses has agreed to go. Moses is on his way to Egypt. Everything seems to be plain, and then on the journey to Egypt, the text says God confronted Moses and intended to put him to death. Wait a minute. God's prepared him. 
we, we've seen his personality, we've seen in, in all these qualities, he's exactly the person for the job. He's agreed to do the job, he's going to do the job, and God attacks him and seeks to put him to death, it says. What on earth is going on here? Well, the resolution to the situation tells us what's going on. His son wasn't circumcised. When God made the covenant with Abram, and he outlined his plan with Abram, the very first expectation he put on Abram is that your sons on the eighth day of life will be circumcised. It was the core of the relationship. It was the sign of the covenant. Now you might say, well, how, how was Moses supposed to know that? Jethro, if you look at the lineage and so forth, Jethro is a descendant of Abram by a different wife, Keturah. And the Midianites that Jethro was a part of, that he was a priest of, they practiced circumcision as well. So Moses had done what? He had begun living his life and carrying out his shepherding and all those other things, you know? But he wasn't holding out his responsibility as a descendant of Abram to circumcise his son, the very core of the covenant. And what you seem to have God saying here is, okay, I'm glad you agreed to lead my people. I'm glad that you're stepping out in this. But you know what? You have to have your family in order. You have to have your core relationships in order before you're going to lead my people in this way. I won't have someone standing before my people who's not doing the very basics of what it means to follow me. You see this played out in the New Testament with, with what? The, the expectations and requirements for pastor or deacons? Why, why are those expectations listed out there? Are those expectations that only those men or those women or those people are supposed to carry out? No. Those are things that are expected of all believers. But he's saying what? If you're going to lead in some capacity, you better be sure those are in place that those are a part of your life and your existence. God holds us accountable to his expectations. No matter how gifted, no matter how, how uh, right we are for the situation, if we're not obedient, he's going to hold us accountable. And you see this played out in, in, here in the story of Moses. Zipporah, obviously, being the daughter of a priest, knew what was going on. She realized what was happening here. She circumcised the son. She throws the foreskin at Moses and, and declares the statement, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. That's, that's actually a marital statement. Would have been part of their marriage ceremony, most likely. And it says, the moment she did that, what? God said, we're good. Let's continue on. Why? Because of the circumcision. Your family's in order now. Let's move forward. God has expectations on us as he calls us, as he challenges us to his purposes and his plan. There are things that we need to be responsible for. Worship, Bible study, prayer, 
sharing our faith, making disciples, baptism, things that are expectations of obedience. They need to be a part of our life and our existence. He cares. He is connected. He's in our world revealing this to us. So Moses travels on, gets to Egypt, and as he's in Egypt, you come to a place, a reality, to where he gets Israel out of Egypt. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but eventually Israel ends up back at Sinai, where God had called Moses. And it's in this moment that we see that God in the world with his people, dwelling with us, he makes us his special possession. To be one of God's people is to be his special possession. And we read in, in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession, my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. God is speaking to Moses here, instructing him to go and, and say this to Israel. And, and you see, uh, uh, again, you see a couple of things here. Number one, the, the very first image of God here, how I carried you out on eagle's wings. That is one of the, the few, they're not very numerous, but they are present, Feminine images of God in Scripture. That is a that is a, a picture. Uh, it's the it's the mother eagle that does that. Okay, and there there are a few of these. Uh, Jesus talks about how he's uh, a hand collecting the chicks and so forth. Why is that important? That's important because again, God is beyond some of the things we sometimes want to constrain him by. Yes, I think it's appropriate and, and necessary to to use the male pronouns for God. I'm not denying that in any way. But it's important for us to understand that he's bigger than that and that he connects with us not just in terms of our masculinity but also in terms of our femininity. God is all-encompassing in terms of his revelation of who he is. But the second thing we see here is what? You will be my own possession out of all the people's although the whole earth is mine. Everything's mine. And we'll see here in a moment that he's just demonstrated. I'm in, I'm in control of everything. Egypt, Palestine, everything. I'm in control of it all. But you're my special possession. You're my special people. And it's so important for us as believers today to, to understand that, that we are... His special possession. Peter will, will reflect these words almost uh, verbatim in his letter later on in the New Testament to us. We are a kingdom of priests. We are God's special people. So often we're struggling for our identity. We're struggling to, to understand who we're supposed to be and, and how to, what's my value in this world or why do I even matter in this world. Let me tell you, if you belong to God, you are of the utmost value. Because your worth is not found just in you, it's found in your connection to Him. And so He makes us His special possession. Now if he, we are His special possession, 
And that tells us what? That tells us that, that he calls us, he challenges us to interact with the world. Remember, God's plan, as we noted, coming from Abraham and so forth, was not just to set aside Abram and Israel for the sake of setting aside Abram and Israel. His plan was to what? To use that to reach out to the nations. His call of Abram's in direct response to the Tower of Babel story. The languages have been confused. The nations have been divided. And now God calls the special people out to what? To be the instrument that he's going to minister to all the nations. Then you see that played out right here in, in our text this morning as we, we step back to Moses' arrival in Egypt. We see that God rescues his people to rescue the world. We see that in Exodus 7-5, that God's purpose was not just to rescue Israel for the sake of Israel. This is what Exodus 7-5 says, The Egyptians at that time shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That sentence there at the beginning of verse 5, that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. That's a covenantal sentence. That, that's a relational sentence that Egyptians will be able to have a relationship with me because of what I'm going to do with Israel here. I'm not just doing this for Israel's sake. I'm doing this so the Egyptians can see. You see that played out very clearly in, in Isaiah chapter 19 where God uses Egypt and Assyria as, as pictures of his covenant relationship with Israel that he would rescue those nations as well. God is saving Israel, but he also seeks to save the non-Israelites that are present as well through his rescue. Second thing we see here is that the plagues announced his superiority over Egyptian gods. Have you ever wondered why, why those plagues? Why those plagues? Why the Nile to blood and the flies and gnats and the boils and the hail and all those other things? We, we, we have those plagues. Actually, if you, if you look at them and you compare them to Egypt's pantheon, their gods, what you discover is that he starts with the very first of Egypt's gods, the Nile. The very first god that ever developed in Egypt was the Nile. I mean, it makes sense from a humanistic standpoint. You're out there in the desert. You have no sustenance. You have no way of living. And you have this source that gives you life. It grows crops for you. It nourishes you with the water and so forth. And so it was the very first. And as you go through each of the plagues represent a god of Egypt. And they culminate with what? They culminate with the, the sun being darkened. Who was the primary god of the new kingdom? Ra, which is represented by what? The sun. Okay. And then the last one, so the Pas uh, the, the, which is the Passover, the, the killing of the, the eldest, that's a direct attack on Horus and Osiris, who are the the primary, they're, they're the height of the pantheon in Egypt. 
as each plague plays out, God is reinforcing, he's he's recommitting, he's communicating. You know, these things that you think are God's, they're nothing before me. When I act, everything bows before me, even your most powerful. And that communicates, again, not just his desire to, to communicate to Israel, you need to see how powerful I am. He's communicating to Egypt that you will see how powerful I am. And then we see his plan succeeded. Exodus 12, 38 is, is one of the, the, I think, most overlooked and yet most powerful of all the passages in the Exodus narrative. As Israel's coming out of Egypt, it says in 1238, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herd. What's that phrase mean, a mixed multitude? It means that the people coming out of Egypt were not just Israelites. The people that God was rescuing at that moment were not just descendants of Jacob. There were some Egyptians in that midst. There were some Kenizzites in that mix. There were different people from different nations, different nationalities in that mix. God did not just rescue his people to rescue his people. He rescued his people to rescue the world. Probably the the most vivid picture of that is a man named Caleb. If you're familiar with the narrative at all, you know that two of the key leaders underneath Moses during the wilderness wanderings was a man named Joshua and a man named Caleb. What you may not realize is that Caleb was not an Israelite from birth. He is described in Numbers 32.12 and Joshua 14.6 and 14 as a Kenizzite. Not a descendant of Jacob at all. He comes from a different tribe, and yet he what? Not only did he get to be part of the Exodus, he became a leader among Israel. Somebody who actually served and judged and functioned in a high position there. God's desire is to be in the world, to rescue the world. And he's doing that through his people. He's doing that through us. He has called us. He has set us apart. He has set us aside. We are his special possession in a special relationship with him. But not just so that we're special so that we can connect with the world and see them become his special possession as well. See them come from people who are not even related to the people of God at all, to leaders and authority and, and, and functioning in, in special and distinct ways. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that's in our world. This is the God that calls us to respond as our worship team comes forward, we come to the time of invitation. I just want to ask you, where are you in connection to God? Are you a part of his special possession? Have you responded to his invitation to life and to hope and to deliverance? Have you responded to to his invitation to, to move from being an enemy of his to being a child of his? If not, this morning's your opportunity. Right now is your opportunity to respond to that. Maybe you're here and you have responded to that. You are his special possession. You you understand your place and your position. 
in this world, in this life. But maybe you haven't been connecting with the world the way you were called to. Ministering and sharing and, and revealing His desire for them. Making disciples as Jesus called us to. If that's you, and you, you want to recommit to that, you want to, you want to commit to that decision here this morning, this is your opportunity. Or maybe you haven't been obedient in some way. Maybe you haven't followed Christ in, in baptism. You, you've accepted Him as your Savior, but you haven't followed through in baptism. Or, or maybe He's called you into some special ministry or mission or task, and you've been saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. Today He wants you to say, yes. Whatever it is God's laying on your heart, come as we sing and stand.